Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The seventh chapter deals with the subject of marriage and particularly the place that marriage holds in a morally corrupt society. And for that reason, it's a very pertinent chapter to us today because marriage has taken a beating today. United States alone, we average about 2.5 million divorces a year. That means that one out of every 150 people in the United States who could have got divorced last year. And another, hello? Uh oh. That's not a good sound. Here we go. That's a good sound. That also means. Oh, okay. All right. You're not distracting me. The median age for the first marriage in the United States is 26. The median age for the first divorce in the United States is 30 years old. Percentage of married people who reach their five-year anniversary, 82%. The percentage of people who reach their 10-year anniversary, 65%. Their 15-year anniversary, 52%. Barely over half the people in the U.S. get to 15 years. 25 years, only 33%. 35 years, only 20%. And 50 years, only 5%. Those kind of statistics led someone to write Dear Abby, suggesting that we change the wedding vows from till death do us part to till someone better comes along. And the cartoon in the newspaper seems more plausible than humorous when it shows a father speaking to his daughter before her marriage and says, try to make it last, honey, at least until I can pay for the wedding. That's the general attitude of many today toward marriage. And as Christians, maybe you've got some questions about your situation relative to marriage. Maybe you're single and you're wondering if it's worth it. Maybe you're married and you're wondering if it's worth it. Maybe you're married to an unbeliever and you're wondering what are my options. Maybe you're divorced right now and you're wondering what are my options. Well, Paul has some answers to those questions in this passage, chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. It's a passage that I have entitled, Where Do I Go From Here? You see, the Corinthians had a lot of problems and a lot of questions. So much so that they began this, or Paul began this chapter by saying, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. They had written to Paul asking questions relative to marriage, and he is answering those questions in this chapter. Those in Corinth from a Jewish background were, were saying that everyone had to marry. 
that it was a sin not to marry. And then when you got married, it was a sin not to have children because God had said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There were others among the Gentiles who were saying that it was more spiritual to remain single. It was more spiritual to be celibate. And so there were some who were actually practicing celibacy within their marriage. Others were getting divorced because they felt like that was more spiritual, and especially if their spouse was an unbeliever. So there was much confusion on this whole issue of marriage. And Paul writes to clear that up. And last week in verses 1 to 7, we saw that he told them marriage is good and marriage is the norm and marriage includes the debt of sexual intimacy to one's spouse, which is a buffer against sexual temptation. But having said that, he also said that marriage is not commanded. It's not for everyone. Being single is good. And some people are specially gifted by God to remain single to serve him. Now having said that, having laid down that principle, Paul now applies it to four groups of people. He answers the question, where do I go from here? And I've listed those four groups in terms of questions in your bulletins. The first question is, what if I was married and am no longer married. Look at verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows. Now, Paul mentions three categories of single people in this chapter. Two are in this verse. The unmarried and widows. If you slide down to verse 25, he comes to another group when he says, Now concerning virgins. So there are widows, there are virgins, and there are the unmarried. I think we need to understand who these categories are. The virgins is clearly dealing with a single person who has never been married. You say, well, that's a big assumption today to call them virgins. Well, he lived in a morally corrupt society, and he calls them virgins. He's talking about people who have never been married before, and they're single The widows are single people who were married, but that marriage was severed by the death of their spouse. That leaves the unmarried. Who are the unmarried? Well, this Greek word is used only four times in the New Testament, and interestingly enough, all four times are right in this chapter. So when we look in this chapter, we can see how Paul uses this word, unmarried. It's a word... Married with the negative in front of it. It means unmarried or demarried. Notice how he uses it. Here in verse 8, he refers to the unmarried and to widows. So we know that the unmarried person is not a widow. Now, come over to verse 32. He says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried, there's our word, is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now, he seems to be using it in a more general sense there, but notice what he does in verse 34. He turns right around and makes it specific again. He says, the woman who is unmarried 
and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. What's that tell us? The unmarried person is not a virgin. The unmarried person is not a single person who has never married before. So the unmarried person is not a widow. The unmarried person is not a single person who has never married. You say, well, who is the unmarried person? We'll come back to verse 11. The fourth time he uses it, he says at the end of verse 10, the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. If she divorces her husband, she must remain unmarried. So who is the unmarried person? The unmarried person was a person who was married and is now divorced. So in verse 8, Paul is addressing people who were married but are no longer married for two reasons. One, because of the death of their spouse. The other, because of divorce. And I think Paul mentions them together because they have something in common. And that is that they many times struggle with having to be single. They are single, but they didn't plan on being single. It happened because of the death of their spouse, or it happened because of divorce. And their sexual lives have been fully awakened by marriage and then abruptly ended by the loss of their partner. Maybe you're sitting here today, and you're in this category. You were married, but you're no longer married. What does Paul say to you? Look at verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. If you're in that situation, Paul says, it's good to stay that way. Now Paul tells us that he is single, at least at this time. Now the Bible doesn't clearly tell us that Paul was married before, but there's some indications that that was the case. Uh, he was a guy that, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, says he was a Hebrew among Hebrews. In other words, he was ahead of everybody else in his class in terms of rising up in Judaism. And because the Jewish position was that you had to marry, it would be very unusual for Paul to be a single guy advancing in Judaism and not being married. He makes an interesting comment in Acts 26.10 where he says that when Christians were put to death, he was casting his vote against them. Casting his vote where? Well, many conclude that Paul was a part of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court system, and he actually got to cast his vote officially in that capacity. And what's interesting about the Sanhedrin is that they were required to be married. And if I'm right about the unmarried being divorced people in this particular verse, then Paul is saying, you should remain even as I am. I was once married, but I'm no longer married. What happened to Paul's wife, we don't know. Maybe she died before he even became a believer because we don't see any mention of her anywhere in the New Testament. But at this point, he is single, and he says to those who were previously married and are now single, it's good to stay that way. Now, I want those of you who like to play Cupid 
to memorize this verse. You find a single person or a divorced person or a, a widow and you say, come on, you can't keep living this way. You've got to at least get out there and look. Don't do that. You see, you may be leading that person away from God's best for them. Because this passage says that God may have actually specially gifted them to remain single in order to serve him more effectively. Now, if you run into somebody in this situation and they're saying, i got to get married, help them. They need you. See, being single has many advantages in the service of God. And there is much that an un married person has the freedom to do that a married person doesn't have the freedom to do. I think I confused some people last week when I spoke about the mission field and some came away saying, is he going to Africa? What I, let me specify. What I, what I have as a dream, because I've been asked several times to come to the mission field and help train missionaries and help teach native pastors to equip them better and that's always been a desire of mine and it's something that I think as a single person I will have more freedom to probably go for a couple weeks at a time help train come back and really leave a lasting impression because I've equipped missionaries and pastors to be more effective in what they're doing that's my dream so I wasn't saying I'm out of here not sure if you were upset or applauding, but I won't ask. You know, in Matthew 19, Jesus lays down some strong principles on marriage, and the disciples listen to this, and in verse 10, the disciples say, well, if that's the way marriage is, it's better not to marry. And you expect Jesus to kind of backpedal and say, no, no, I didn't mean that. They say it's better not to marry. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, Not everybody can accept that, but only those to whom it has been given. They say it's better not to marry, and Jesus says, bingo. But only those that can accept that are going to be able to do that, and Paul tells us the same thing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's not for everybody, but God has specially gifted some people to be able to handle that singleness and to be more effective in the service of God. You say, but would God give the gift of celibacy to a person who has been married and is now divorced or widowed? Yeah, he would. If you go back to Luke chapter 2, verses 36 and 37, we read there about Anna. And it says this about Anna. It says, she lived with her husband seven years and was now a widow to the age of 84. Now, in that culture, you often got married about 14. Don't run off with that idea. Got married about 14. So if she got married about 14, she was married seven years. Some of you parents are going, yeah, that's a good idea. Married at 14, she would be a widow at 21. She's now 84. So she's been a widow for 63 
years. You think some people didn't come along when she was 21 and say, you need to find another husband. What did she do with all that time that she had? Well, it tells us in those two verses. It says, she served night and day in the temple with fastings and prayers. She took that extra time and she stayed in the temple fasting and praying. Now, do you think that she's looking back in heaven going, you know what? I wish I had gone on eHarmony and found some guy. No. At 21, she was out of her marriage. God gave her the capacity to stay single and be committed to the service of the Lord in a powerful, powerful way. And so again, I I see this as a gift God could give to somebody even though they had been married prior to that. You say, but what if a person is single and not satisfied? What if a person is single and all they can think about is getting married? Well, that's verse 9. He says, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. You didn't know the Bible said that, did you? Better to marry than to burn. I heard about an old preacher who misinterpreted this verse. He got up and preached, you got a choice, you can either marry or go to hell. That's not what this verse means. He's saying if you're single and you don't have self-control, you obviously don't have the gift of being single, so go ahead and marry. If you're single and you're burning with passion, go ahead and get married. See, there's no use in going around saying, I'm remaining single for the cause of Christ, and all you're thinking about is, I wish I was married. That's ridiculous. And so he says, go ahead and marry. You say, well, Dan, I don't think I've got the gift of remaining single, so I'd like to marry, but there's no one to marry. Well, let me give you two suggestions. Number one, recognize your present situation of being single as a situation from the Lord. And use whatever time there is when you are single to honor him and serve him with your life. It may not be for the rest of your life, but it is going to be for a window of time. So take advantage of that extra time you have, not being married, to serve the Lord. Second suggestion, don't concentrate so much on finding the right person as in being the right person. I find a lot of people, all they want to do is find Prince Charming. And I don't say it to them, but I'm thinking, well, you're not, Princess Charming. (laughs) See, if you want a princess, don't be a toad. The one thing you can work on is, Lord, change me. Make me into a person that when she happens to come along, she's going to recognize me as the kind of person she's looking for and who she's looking for. Not necessarily tall, dark, and handsome. She's looking for those character qualities of Jesus Christ. So work on yourself, become the person that is going to be attractive to that person you want to attract when they come along. That's another sermon. 
To the unmarried and widows, he says, it's good to remain single, but if you can't handle that, get married. Second group, you say, well, what if I'm married to a believer? Well, he deals with that in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. This is not new revelation. Jesus talked about this in the Gospels. What's the message? That the wife should not leave her husband. That word leave is literally a phrase that means to depart, and it's a term for divorce. He's saying, don't divorce your spouse. If you're married to a believer, there is no divorce allowed among Christians. Jesus said in Matthew 2.16, or I'm sorry, God said in Matthew 2.16, I hate divorce. And so Paul says, if you're married to another believer, you don't leave. And then at the end of verse 11, he speaks not just to the wife, but to the husband. And he says that the husband should not divorce his wife. You say, well, what if I was married to a believer and now I have divorced him? Well, look at verse 11. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. It's already happened. He says you've got two options. You can remain unmarried for the rest of your life. Or you can get married and there's only one person on the planet that you can marry. And that's the guy you were married to. So you have to be reconciled in that relationship. Now, let me add a footnote. Paul is saying he's telling us something that Jesus said. And if you go back and read what Jesus said, he's already assuming that you know that Jesus did give an exception, and that was the exception of adultery. And he does that in Matthew 5 and again in Matthew 19. But if you read that passage, I want you to understand when Jesus talks about adultery as an exception for divorce, he's saying it's permitted, not it's commanded. Even when there's a divorce in a marriage relationship between two believers, you can take the role of Hosea in the Old Testament who forgave his wife and restored her and turn that marriage into something of blessing and honor to the Lord. And so the exception is divorce. We see that in the example of Joseph in Matthew 1.19. It says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. And so immorality is the only exception for divorce among two Christians. Apart from that, there's no allowance for divorce. So if you do divorce, Paul says, you are to remain single or else be reconciled. So Paul speaks to the unmarried and widows, those that were previously married and are no longer married. Then he speaks to those who are married to a Christian You say, well, Dan, what about me? I'm married to an unbeliever. What if I got saved and I was already married and my spouse wasn't saved and still isn't saved? Can I dump him and go find a nice Christian man? 
Especially since Paul already said back in chapter 6 and verse 5 that we're one with Christ. And since we're one with Christ, we shouldn't become one with a harlot. So someone might take that logic and say, well, I shouldn't be one with an unbeliever because I am one with Christ. So if I become one with an unbeliever, doesn't that defile me? So what about mixed marriages? Notice verse 12. Paul says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. Now, this is an area that Jesus didn't talk about. Jesus didn't talk about believers and unbelievers and how they relate to each other. So Paul says, I'm not quoting Jesus here. I'm giving you some new revelation on this subject of marriage. And the third area that he deals with is what if I'm married to an unbeliever who stays? Look at verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. If you have an unbelieving spouse that wants to stay in that relationship, then you let them stay. You don't get married and tell your unbelieving spouse, okay, Mac, you're out of here. If that unbeliever is willing to stay, you don't initiate divorce. You say, but won't I be defiled in that relationship? No. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. It's a great verse. Not only will you not be defiled, but the opposite is true. The unbeliever will be sanctified. If you're married to an unbeliever, you're not going to become unholy. Guess what? He or she is going to become Holy, which tells me, how many people does it take to make a Christian home? One. You see, if you are one Christian in a home, you bring God's sanctifying effect on that whole household. You say, wait a minute. What does he mean by sanctified? Does that mean if I have an unbelieving spouse... That person is automatically saved? No. The word sanctified means to set apart. And so what he's saying is if if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, that person is set apart unto God's blessing. You see, in a marriage, the two become one. And if God blesses one, guess what happens? There's spillover into the life of the other. It's like if your wife's distant uncle dies and leaves her an inheritance. You never knew him, but you still reap the benefits of that. That's the way it is in a marriage relationship. When one spouse is a believer getting the blessing from God, that blessing spills over even unto the unbelieving spouse. Remember in Genesis 18 when Abraham prayed for Sodom 
And he said, would you spare Sodom if there were 50 righteous people? And God said, yes. Then he said, well, how about 45? Yeah. How about 40? Yeah. How about 30? Yeah. How about 20? Yeah. How about 10? Yeah. What's that tell us? 10 righteous people would have been enough to spare the whole city of Sodom. Those 10 righteous people in that corrupt city would have brought a sanctifying effect of God's blessing on the entire place. And that same holds true in a Christian home. God is giving his sanctifying blessing on that entire home. If you are one Christian in a home, that's a Christian home. You say, well, what about our children? Well, look at the end of verse 14. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Paul knows that there are some people worrying about If I have an unbelieving spouse, what kind of effect is that going to have on my children? I can't have children with this unbeliever or they'll be half-breeds. What effect is it going to have to have a pagan in the home helping raise my children? And Paul says, great comfort here, they are not defiled. They are sanctified. They are set apart. See, if you are a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever, this is a promise from God that he has his umbrella of blessing over that home. And he will protect your children in that situation. They are set apart unto the blessings of God. You say, well, finally, what if I'm married to an unbeliever who leaves? Verses 15 and 16. Look at verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. What does a Christian do when his or her unbelieving spouse wants a divorce? Paul says, let him go. Let her go. I have to be careful with this verse because I... I, You know, he's not saying... You know, there there are ways to leverage your spouse to want to leave. And I think the obvious implication here, if you want to know how you're to behave in a relationship where your spouse is disobedient to the word, go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and it says you're to be submissive in that situation. And you're to allow him without a word from you to see the reality of your faith in Christ. So he, he talks in other places about how you're to live in this situation. So he's not assuming that you've leveraged him out, and now you say, whoops, he left. That's not the situation here. The, the implication is he's leaving despite the fact that you are being a Christian influence and being submissive in that relationship, he's leaving because of your faith in Christ. That's the implication. And he says, when that happens, you let him go, you let her go. You say, but what about me? If, If I let them go, am I to remain unmarried the rest of my life? Well, look at the rest of verse 15. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. If the unbeliever chooses to leave the marriage, let them go. You're not under bondage. 
In other words, you're free. Free to do what? Free to remarry. You say, you think that's really what God's saying? Is God really saying here that if you allow your unbelieving spouse to leave that you can actually turn around and marry again? Exactly. You see, when God wants to tell you that you can't marry again, he knows how to say that. He said that in verse 11. To the spouse who leaves her believing husband, he says to her, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. Here, when the unbeliever leaves, he says, you're not under bondage. Now, some of you don't like to call marriage bondage, but the Bible does. It's a bound relationship. And here he says, you're no longer under that bound relationship. You're free. He uses the same idea. If you look over at verse 39, he says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free. Free to do what? Free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. You're out of that relationship, that bondage, and you are free to remarry, and the only qualification he throws in there is don't turn around and marry another unbeliever. Marry in the Lord. You say, but if I remarry, I might not have a chance to win my ex-spouse to Christ. We'll look at verse 16. He says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? What he's saying is, you, you don't just cling to that person thinking, if I let them go, they're going to stay lost forever. He's saying, how do you know you can save them? You can't save them. You see, the only one who can save somebody is the Lord. So if your unbelieving spouse leaves, he says, you're called to peace. And you're not going to win somebody to the Lord in a, in a place of turmoil. So you let them go. And you move on with your life. And you don't really know what impact obedience to the Lord in this situation may have on that person's life. Where do I go from here? If you have been married before, you are in one of these four categories. So you simply need to find yourself in this passage and God tells you exactly what you need to do. So the only thing that's left is for you to say, God help me to be who you've called me to be, to do what you've called me to do in the situation I find myself in. Real simple and real practical. Before we close in prayer, I'm going to ask Lincoln and Janice to come up. all the way up and turn around in that spotlight so everybody can see the 
Scots have come this morning not only to be baptized, but as Lincoln said earlier, to join our fellowship. And so we're going to have the opportunity to welcome them today. Uh, I think Janice may be the first person who's ever worn a swimming cap to be baptized. So that's a a new record uh, for us. Um, But uh, Chad, if you would go ahead and lead them out to the lobby. And after I close in prayer, I'll give you an opportunity to welcome them into our fellowship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you give us such specific direction. Whatever our situation is, you speak to that. And Lord, we're thankful for that. We're not left to guess. And Lord, as we look at marriage, it's a very difficult thing to be married in a morally corrupt society. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts this morning as we see ourselves in this passage and where we fit in this passage. And Father, I pray that we would truly look to you and not our own resources to walk out what you've called us to walk out. And Lord, I pray that as a result of that, that you would be glorified in our lives and that you would allow us to be people who are different, that are lights in this world, even in the areas of our relationship and our marriage. We pray in Jesus' name.